Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially, you can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. Oakview family, it was... 10 months ago that we, we got down here at this altar together and we just asked the Lord to do something greater than we could ask or imagine. We asked for him to do something that would breathe life and vitality into this church family, would allow it to continue to thrive in this community. And 10 months later now, we're going to gather together at this same altar and give thanks with Robbie and Cecily here. Something special has happened over there. And uh, yeah, yeah, man, I, I, we're excited. It's crazy. Uh, I'm telling you, Oakview has, is running full tilt right now. It's just amazing what God has done in less than a year over there. And thank you guys for being a part of that journey, whether you feel like you were or not. I know some of you actually have been there. Some of you have served meals. Some of you have worshiped there with Okeechobee. And some of y'all were just kind of watching from afar. But I want you to know how much of a church-wide thing, like who... Churches don't usually just, are, they're not usually okay with their pastors just being gone a lot to go serve at other churches. They're throwing up their hands saying, what's up? Don't we pay you? Why aren't you here? Um, but Grace Bible is about something else. We're about building the kingdom of God, however that needs to look. 
And for whatever reason, God had appointed us to be a part of a church revitalization in Okeechobee. And you guys have not only celebrated it, but you've encouraged us. Our church has continued to thrive despite the whiplash. Y'all have been under under the last year. You've been getting different preachers speaking here every week as we've been sending our team down there and back and forth into other abide churches. And I'm just grateful for y'all. Like, this is a unique place. We, we really believe as an elder team that their church planting and church revitalization is in our future. Uh, we just don't know what that looks like yet, but join us in praying for that. And we know that God has been equipping and appearing, uh, preparing you as the church family to be a part of that journey. And so continue to pray for that end. We do believe that thy kingdom will come, thy will will be done right here in the heartland as it is in heaven. And we're going to do things God's way. And we're going to be about building the kingdom of God together. And it is just something sweet to be a part of. So thank you all for all that you do. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Luke chapter 9. We're still studying the book of Mark, but we're going to be in Luke. Uh, they tell the same story, just so happened to tell the same story in the same chapter. We were going to be in Mark chapter 9 today, but I want to go to Luke because Luke adds a couple of details in his kind of clinical view of things. Luke adds a couple of details that I think might be helpful for us understanding one of the most mysterious moments in the life and ministry of Jesus so we can have a better understanding of what God was doing and why it matters for us in our lives. So as you're flipping your way over there, Pastor Cameron led us through uh, the final exam question last week. We finally made it. Mark chapter 8, where Jesus looks at his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? The whole point of the first half of the book of Mark leading up to chapter 8 was so that the disciples in particular, but at least, but also the people around Jesus would know who Jesus was. And so Jesus asked the question to which Cam talked about last week, the apostle Peter got right. He says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Though Peter had it right in his mind, he didn't quite have it right in his heart. Because just after that, when Jesus, just a couple of verses, I mean a few seconds later, Peter starts rebuking Jesus because Jesus said that things were going to get tough, that he was ultimately going to end up having to die. And Peter steps in to say, oh, no, you ain't. And remember what Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me. So we know Peter knew the right answer in his head, but it hadn't transformed his heart yet. And Jesus followed that up with some really hard words, some words that still resonate to us today. When Jesus told Peter and the disciples, if anyone is going to come after me and follow me, they're going to have to deny themselves and take up their cross. This was shocking, disturbing, depressing news for disciples that up to this point had only known the rapidly escalating popularity that they had gained. When Jesus went fishing with them, they would get more fish than their boat could handle. When they went from town to town, crowds of tens of thousands of people would gather. They were loved. They were celebrated. But Jesus let them know that there's a change about to happen. Now that you guys are becoming clear on who I am, the whole rest of the back half of the book of Mark, Jesus is describing to us why he came. That's why we call the second part, <coughs> the back half of this series, the king and his cross. Jesus is going to talk a whole lot about his death from here through the rest of the book of Mark. As we take a close look and follow closely the life and ministry of Jesus, we're going to get to see the big picture of why he came and why that matters for us even now in the 21st century. But as you have your Bibles, hopefully in Luke chapter 9 by now, jump in with me at verse 28. <coughs> I still can't kick this cough. About eight days, say eight days. Yeah, about eight days after Jesus had said these things, um, just so you know, like, 
This is supposed to catch our attention as we're studying through, especially as we've been going through the book of Mark. Like all of the little transitions from the different moments in the ministry of Jesus have usually been transitioned by words like immediately or later that afternoon or the next day or a couple days later. This is the first time where we see lag time of nothing happening for over a week. As you might imagine, getting the news as disciples that if you keep following me, that it's probably going to cost you your life. They needed some time to reel a little bit. They needed some time to sit around and process that a little bit. There wasn't a whole lot of action between Jesus saying what he said and what we're about to see right here. Now, for those of you that have been studying ahead in the book of Mark, and you notice that Mark said after the sixth day, and here Luke is saying about eight days, let me just do a little quick commercial break. This is one of the places in scripture where those that try to discredit the authority of scripture, this is one of the places that they go and they say, look, here's a discrepancy in the text. The Bible doesn't line up with itself in all of its places. Let me explain to you real quick what's happening. Mark is writing to a primarily Hebrew audience and Hebrews to say about a week, they would say after the sixth day. Luke on the other hand is writing to a primarily Greek audience And in the world of the Greeks, for you to say about a week, you would say in about eight days. All they're doing is speaking the language of the culture that they're in, but they both mean it was about a week later, about seven days later or so. And so here we find lag time with the depressed and discouraged disciples, nothing really happening. About eight days after Jesus had said these things, he took with him Peter, James, and John. Jesus seems to have a bit of a closer relationship with those three than he does with the 12. He's got kind of an inner network. You'll see Peter, James, and John be a part of some things that the other guys don't get to be a part of. He grabs Peter, James, and John. He goes up onto the mountain to pray. Say pray. The mountain that they're headed to. It's Mount Hermon. We've talked about Mount Hermon earlier on in the series when we discussed the mountain that's right there on the Sea of Galilee. So they go up to the mountain to pray, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. Oh, lo and behold, it was Moses and Elijah. Say Moses and Elijah. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep because when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it sure is a good thing that we're here. Thanks, Peter. Let us make three tents for one of you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And not knowing what Peter said because Peter typically had foot-in-mouth syndrome, As he was saying these things, out of his mouth hangs wide open, a cloud came in and overshadows them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came from the cloud. This is what we see throughout the Old Testament referred to as the Shekinah glory of God. This is like when God shows up in kind of a thick cloud, and we've seen God do this before throughout history, and God begins to speak, and God says these words, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Peter, James, and John were still there, but Moses and Elijah are now gonzo. Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. 
And I'll just explain to you how emotionally and mentally exhausting this past week had been for all of the disciples, hearing the news that if they continued to walk with Jesus, it would probably result in them hanging on a cross one day, if not being killed in some other horrific way. And so after probably the most emotionally and mentally draining week of their life, if, if, at least with, of their life with Jesus, now Peter, James, and John find themselves invited to a prayer meeting that's going to be at the top of Mount Hermon. And by the way, that would have been a 9,000-foot elevation hike. This would have taken some time. By the time they get to the top of the mountain, now they are also, to add to the mental and emotional exhaustion, they are also physically exhausted. So what started as a group prayer service ended up with the disciples sleeping and Jesus continuing to pray. We'll see that happen again later on in his ministry. And as these guys are in a deep sleep, they begin to hear just the murmur of Jesus' voice turn into multiple voices. Now, the sound of Jesus praying is not just him praying, but they hear him talking, and it sounds like other people are talking with him. And sure enough, like as they're coming out of the fog of sleep and wiping the sleepy dirt from their eyes, they had to have been looking at each other saying, is this really happening? Like, are you awake? Because that's Moses and Elijah. They've been gone for thousands of years. And here they are, like on the top of the mountain with us. This is crazy. Like Moses, just so you know, like we we have biblical evidence of him dying, but it seems like God decided to have a a, like a one-on-one funeral service, and God buried Moses himself. We even see in the scriptures where the archangel Michael and Satan are like racing to try to find where the body of Moses was buried, but nobody knows. There's a lot of mystery around the death of Moses. Elijah's death is even more mysterious because as far as we can tell, Elijah never died. He just was walking through life, being obedient to the Lord, and then the Lord took him to be with him. Like, it's just like, what, what happened there? Elijah was the greatest of all the prophets. Moses was the giver of the law of God. Two critical players in the history of the Jewish religion and two critical players in the history of people's ability to have a relationship with God. And here they are at the top of the mountain as the disciples come out of a deep sleep and see not only Moses and Elijah there reflecting the glory of God, Luke and Mark tell us that Jesus then transfigures before them. Say transfigures. The way Luke described it is that Jesus' face began to change. His appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. Luke, nor Mark, nor any of the other disciples knew how to put in words what they were seeing, but what they were seeing was the glory of God being on full display right there in the life of Jesus. And did you notice what they were talking about? Did did you catch that when we were reading through verse 30 and 31? Moses, Elijah, now Jesus being transfigured, the glory of God shining through Jesus, reflecting off of Moses and Elijah. Did you catch the conversation they were having? Verse 30 and 31. It says, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, verse 31 says, who appeared in glory and they were speaking to Jesus of his, what's that word? Yeah, of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So Moses and Elijah show up to have a conversation with Jesus on the top of Mount Hermon to talk about the game plan for the exit strategy. They were discussing Jesus' road to the cross, his eventual resurrection, and then 40 days later, his eventual ascension back into heaven. They were talking through this as a group when the disciples arose and saw this happening and overheard some of it. And 
Here we are, mountaintop experience, the fullness of the glory of God on display through Jesus. Here these guys are that have been gone for centuries, are present. They're having a conversation about the eventual death of Christ. And did you catch what in this incredible moment with the giver of the law of God and the greatest of the prophets of God and God the Son in the flesh all in one spot, did you catch how the disciples responded, particularly Peter? He spoke up. I mean, you would think this would have been a perfect time to get on your face and worship. The glory of God is present. But Peter says something like Peter always seems to do. Peter was under the illusion that he was there witnessing a great move of God because God had them there. He even said, oh, man, it's a good thing we're here. Let me build some tents. Peter was under the illusion that God had placed him there in this unique move of God so that he would say something or do something. Thanks, but no thanks, Peter. I love God's response to Peter. I don't know if you caught that in verse 34. It says that as Peter was saying these things, verse 33 says that he he didn't even know what he was talking about. He's kind of blabbering at the mouth like Peter often does. As Peter is saying these things and his lips are just flapping all kinds of dumb, all right? It says that a cloud comes and overshadows him. God literally interrupts Peter with a fog of himself and begins to speak over Peter, saying, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Stop talking, Peter. Listen to him. You know, Peter, quite frankly, was making a common mistake that we all too often make ourselves uh, in our lives, just, just, just so we camp out here for a second before we move on. Um, it's not uncommon for you and I to believe... For those of you that have walked with the Lord any length of time, and I know not all of you are believers in Jesus yet, and I know many of you are, but like for those of you that have walked with the Lord for any length of time, like it's a common mistake for us to make that every time we see a movement of God happening in our life that he wants us to say something or to do something. And let me be honest with you, like there are times, plenty of times in our life where the Lord has called us to say a thing or to do a thing, but sometimes the Lord is moving in our midst because he doesn't want us to do anything or say anything. He wants us to behold him. Sometimes he moves very abruptly and brashly and unexpectedly because he wants us to see something, not say something. He wants to bear witness to his glory. We wonder why sometimes when God is doing some of his greatest work in our lives, he does it very silently so we can't see it. And we wonder, oh, God, where are you? Why aren't you listening to my prayers? Because he knows that like Peter, if he does some of his biggest work right in front of our face, we will volunteer to help. We'll say, oh, God, I see you moving. And it's a good thing I'm here because I've got some ideas. Let me help. It's the loving kindness of God to do some of his greatest work in our lives while we don't even realize it's happening. But there are times where he does move abruptly, brashly, unexpectedly, inexplainably. And maybe just maybe if that's happening in your life right now, maybe God isn't trying to get you to say a thing or doing a thing. Maybe he wants you to just see a thing. Maybe he wants you to bear witness to his glory at work right in front of you. Maybe he wants this really uncomfortable and terrifying situation that you're staring down the barrel at to be president, presence of his very glory, his very goodness, his very holiness. I'm not saying it's gonna be any more comfortable when you realize that, but what I am saying is it's a reminder for God that he is here and he is near and he is with you. 
But much like Peter, had God not interrupted with a fog and spoke over him, we might just have missed what God wanted us to see in this very powerful moment, this unprecedented moment in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, for those of you that aren't yet followers of Jesus, hang in there because (laughs) some of this conversation is really going to pay dividends in your life. For those of you that are followers of Jesus and you have spent some time throughout your life reading the, the Bible, help me out here. Let me ask you a question. Is this the first time we've seen in the scriptures the Shekinah glory of God show up as a thick cloud, settle down on the top of a mountain, speak and declare his word of truth, and reveal his glory to those that were present? Is this the first time we've ever seen this happen in the Bible? That's right, it's happened a couple times before. Just so happens that once it happened back in Exodus chapter 33, as the glory of God settled down like a thick cloud on the top of Mount Sinai, and who was there with him in that thick cloud? It was really. Picking up the parallel here. With Moses, oh yeah, and it happened again in 1 Kings chapter 19 when the glory of God settled down on top of Mount Horeb and he was with Elijah. Who's on the mountain with Jesus and the disciples here at Mount Hermon centuries later? Who's the audience of all this has taken place with? Moses. And Elijah. The reason why they are there is not so that we can see that they're game planning and strategizing with Jesus about his departure, his eventual end of his earthly ministry. We're supposed to take notice of the fact that, whoa, wait a second. We've seen the cloud of God settle before. We've seen the glory of God reveal before. And those were the guys it was with. Because we're supposed to go back and take a look at their stories and see what's so different about what's happening now on this mountain with Jesus, Mount Hermon, versus what was happening on the mountains with Moses, the giver of the law of God, and Elijah, the greatest of the prophets of God. It'll probably be easier if we look at Moses' story because it seems like most of us are familiar with that. Well, most of you that are familiar with it would be most familiar with that one, I should say. Um, So go back in your minds with me to Exodus, around Exodus chapter 33, when uh, the Shekinah glory of God settles down on top of Mount Sinai, and God declares through just a roar of thunder and lightning, he declares to the people of Israel, he says these words, Alahar in Hebrew, which means, come on up. Up until this point, they had followed God, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, but God actually gives them the invitation to ascend the mountain and be wrapped up in his presence. And you know what Israel said? No way. They knew something. They knew that the holiness of God was lethal to sinful humanity. And so they said, we ain't going up there. I know what I did last night. You ain't catching me up there. Moses, you go, Exodus 33, you talk to God, you tell us what he says. So Moses goes up by himself to meet with God on the top of Mount Sinai. And Moses says to God, Exodus 33, 
Lord, will you show me your glory? And God's response to Moses, Exodus, Exodus 33, <clears throat> Moses, that's going to be a little tricky because no one can look upon my face and live. The holiness of God is so set apart, so much glory, so much majesty, that it would kill a sinner like me. They knew it, like Moses. And so God says, you know what, let's, let's do this though. I'm gonna hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'm gonna shield you with my hand, Exodus 33, and I'm gonna walk by. And when I get past you, I'll remove my hand and you can behold the backside of my glory. And so that's exactly what happened. And Moses observed the rear end of the glory of God. I don't know exactly what that was like, but definitely not his face. And it so transformed him that when he went back down the mountain to meet with the people of Israel, his face shone like the sun. Kind of like the moon reflects the sun, Moses' face had beheld just the backside of the glory of God, and it caused his face to just illuminate in such a way that the people of Israel at the bottom of the mountain couldn't even look upon Moses. It was shining so bright. The radiance of the glory of God just simply being reflected off of Moses was so powerful that they couldn't even look at Moses. But now fast forward, here we are a few centuries later, we're at the top of Mount Hermon, the Shekinah glory of God has settled down, it envelops them in a cloud. Moses and Elijah are even there to be a part of it, reflecting the glory of God, and then something crazy happens. Jesus transfigures, say transfigures. That's what the Bible refers to it as often. You may have learned it said that way. Jesus transfigures before them. The, the best way Luke could put it into words is saying that the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes were like dazzling white like they had never seen before. What was happening with Jesus? What was, what was the transfiguring doing? It was, it was the glory of God. Not, not being reflected off of Jesus. It was Jesus himself producing the glory of God in and through himself because he was God. Tim Keller put it like this, way better than I ever could. Moses had reflected the glory of God as the moon reflects the light of the sun, but Jesus produces the unsurpassable glory of God. It emanates from him. Jesus does not point to the glory of God as Elijah and Moses and every other prophet had ever done. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. That's why the author of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, write that down. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. But wait a sec. The fullness of the glory of God is on display here. They witnessed even the face of Jesus transfigured. Now they have seen the face of the glory of God and they're not hiding in the cleft of a rock. They don't even have sunglasses on. And it didn't kill them. But it does explain why they were so terrified. Every good Jewish boy knew that you can't enter into the presence of the glory of God and come out with your life. Holiness of, the holiness of God is lethal for sinful humanity. But when the glory of God in its fullness shone on the top of the mountain that day, it didn't kill them. But this is why Peter said what he said. Oh, it's a good thing that we're here. Let me build y'all some tents. 
just so you know, like I played it, I was joking when I played it up earlier. Peter actually knew what he was talking about. He wasn't just saying like, oh, this is too cool. We need to hang out a little bit longer. Let's have kumbaya for a little longer. I'll set up the tents. We can camp out, do marshmallows and the whole thing. That isn't what he was saying at all. The word tent in Peter's language was the word for tabernacle. See, Peter knew that the only way to spare their life in the presence of the glory of God is they were going to have to start making some sacrifices and perform some rituals so that the divine authority of God did not crush them. And so Peter starts scrambling, trying to figure out what to do, and God shows up on the scene, interrupts Peter mid-sentence as Peter was going to try to use a little bit of religion to protect him from the glory of God. God speaks up on the scene, shows up as a cloud, envelops them all, and says to them, this is my son. He is the one that I have chosen. Listen to him. This was Mark and Peter's, Mark and Luke's way of describing this earth-changing, religion-shattering, life-altering, timeless truth. As we finish these, this last section, this is how they described it. As Peter was saying these things, verse 34, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered into the cloud. And a voice came, this is my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. In other words, Moses and Elijah had left at that point. This is Luke and Mark's way of describing that, hey, listen, Grace, Moses is gone. And Elijah is gone. The law of Moses is no longer the bridge to God. The prophecy of Elijah is no longer the voice of God. Jesus is now the bridge over the gap between God and sinful humanity. Jesus is able to give what Elijah and Moses could never give and what no one else in history could ever deliver. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law of Moses and he is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Elijah and every other prophet like him. Jesus is the temple and tabernacle that puts an end to all temples and tabernacles. Jesus is the sacrifice that puts an end to all sacrifices. Through Jesus, who is now the way, the truth, and the life, can we be made right with God once and for all, for all time. This is good news for us. And this was a radical display of this. In a big way, here's why this matters for us. Kind of in the big macro sense, the big picture of this. When God said in the presence of the giver of the law and the leading voice of the prophets, when God said that this is my son who I've chosen, now listen to him. He's saying we have come to a time where I no longer want you to listen to the law of Moses. I no longer want you to cling to the prophecy of Elijah because Jesus is the greater Moses, the fulfillment of everything Moses said, and Jesus is the greater Elijah, the fulfillment of all the prophecy ever been told. And in a big picture sense, that means that in order for us to be made right with God, We no longer have to keep the unreachable standards of the old covenant that was given by Moses. 
nor do we have to cling with hopeful anticipation that some prophecy of God is going to be fulfilled so that we can be made right and made whole. He says Jesus is all of those things in the flesh and in person. He is God, the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. He's the only bridge now. Interestingly enough, the whole New Covenant, what we call the New Testament, just describes to us over and over again all the work that has been done on our behalf, the cross just being part of it. The finished and completed work of Jesus so that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever believed in the bridge named Jesus would have a way to God to be made right with him once and for all, for all time. This matters because Listen, I I hope that I can set you free this morning with the word of God. All of the standards and the laws and the prescribed behaviors and patterns of men or even of some of your old old covenant theology, they can't make you right with God. You can't perform well enough in order to be made right with God. And he's given us another way. He's given us the one that have performed perfectly well. His name is Jesus. And in trusting and believing in him, our sins are forgiven. We are made right with God once and for all, for all time. And instead of us working for the grace of God, now we get to work from the grace of God. Now we're not trying to figure out how to behave well so that God will accept us, but now we realize in the new covenant, God has accepted us. And so it's going to drive us to behave well. We can't help but love and worship the Savior that rescued us. There's a transformation happening in our hearts as the glory of God becomes more and more evident in the life of the believer, as we continue to learn how to yield to him and all the stuff of life. In the big picture, that's what's happening here. In the small, minuscule, acute picture of what's happening here. Man, these disciples had just been through the roughest week of their life. And they were just told if they keep walking with Jesus, it's going to get harder from here and it will eventually cost you your life as well. And in a tiny but very real way, in this moment, to a bunch of discouraged and depressed followers of his, he pulls back the veil of heaven to remind them that don't worry about what life's throwing at you. Don't worry about the hardship or peril that you're experiencing right now. Don't be fearful about what is to come because I am the king that sits over all of it. I'm making a master strategy to defeat it. And through what I'm going to do, you too will be more than conquerors through him who loves you. So I don't know if you're here this morning and you are staring down the barrel of peril in your life and you are going through the hardship or the uncertainty of what may be coming, or you are struggling in this particular season of your life to find the hope that you need to keep putting one foot in front of the other through this tough stuff that you're dealing with, may the Lord peel back the veil of his glory for just a moment in your life that you might see that he is still the king that sits on the highest throne. Nothing in your life is apart from his presence and apart from his will. He is at work in you, through you, and as you, O believer in Jesus. The very things that may be happening in your story that make you feel as if he is a million miles away, quite frankly, the transfiguration reminds us that he is doing a work right in front of our face, but maybe he has veiled it from us because he doesn't need any volunteers. 
I pray for you this weekend that the Lord would give you just a glimpse of his majesty, that that might be the place that you find the hope to keep on trusting in him. One thing's for sure, you're never gonna find enough hope to keep going in saying a thing or doing a thing. That won't get you there. You might even miss the whole work of God because you, like Peter, have convinced yourself, God must have me here because he wants me to do something creative. God has you here because he wants you to see him in a way you've never seen him before. And that's a place you'll be able to find hope. When you hear the voice of the king of heaven and earth remind you that he is here and he is near and he will never leave you and he will never forsake you and don't believe the lie from the enemy that has tried to convince you otherwise. Jesus don't break his promises. He ain't going anywhere. He's all up in the business. He might just be quiet about it right now. Let me pray for you. Lord, we need to be reminded of your presence. These families all over the country in Texas and Buffalo and California, God, they need to be reminded of your presence. Lord, would you peel back the veil of your glory for just a moment that we might have a glimpse of your power and your majesty at work around us even though we don't always see it. Lord, I pray that you would bring comfort that only you can give, that your power would be made manifest in our life and our families and our community and our schools, that you would stand guard all of our schools. I pray that you would transform us through the inner working of the Holy Spirit at work in us. Father, do something that only you can do. Lord, we'll be careful to give you credit and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.